0: Chapter Twenty Nine and Thirty of the Grand Babylon Hotel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Grand Babylon Hotel by Arnold Bennett. Chapter Twenty Nine Theodore is Called to the Rescue. As Nella passed downstairs from the top story with her father, the lifts had not yet begun to work, she drew him into her own room and closed the door. "'What's this all about?' he asked, somewhat mystified, and even alarmed by the extreme seriousness of her face. "'Dad,' the girl began, "'you are very rich, aren't you? Very, very rich?' She smiled anxiously, timidly. He did not remember to have seen that expression on her face before. He wanted to make a facetious reply, but checked himself. "'Yes,' he said, "'I am. You ought to know that by this time.' "'How soon could you realize a million pounds?' "'A million! "'What?' he cried. Even he was staggered by her calm reference to this gigantic sum. "'What on earth are you driving at?' "'A million pounds,' I said. "'That is to say, five million dollars. "'How soon could you realize as much as that?' "'Oh,' he answered, "'in about a month, if I went about it neatly enough.' I could unload as much as that in a month without scaring Wall Street and other places, but it would want some arrangement useless she exclaimed. Couldn't you do it quicker if you really had to? If I really had to, I could fix it in a week, but it would make things lively and I should lose on the job. Couldn't you she persisted, couldn't you go down this morning and raise a million somehow if it was a matter of life and death? He hesitated. Look here, Nella, he said. What is it you've got up your sleeve? Just answer my question, Dad, and try not to think that I'm a stark staring lunatic. I rather expect I could get a million this morning, even in London, but it would cost pretty dear. It might cost me fifty thousand pounds, and there would be the dickens of an upset in New York, a sort of grand universal slum in my holdings. Why should New York know anything about it? "'Why should New York know anything about it?' he repeated. "'My girl, when anyone borrows a million sovereigns, the whole world knows about it. Do you reckon that I can go up to the governors of the Bank of England and say, "'Look here, lend Theodore Rexall a million for a few weeks, and he'll give you an IOU and a covering note on stocks?' "'But you could get it,' she asked again. "'If there is a million in London, I guess I could handle it,' he replied. "'Well, Dad,' and she put her arms round his neck, "'you've just got to go out and fix it. See, it's for me. I've never asked you for anything really big before, but I do now, and I want it so badly.' He stared at her. "'I award you the prize,' he said at length. "'You deserve it for colossal and immense coolness. Now you can tell me the true inward meaning of all this rigmarole. What is it?' "'I... "'Want it for... Prince Eugen,' she began, at first hesitatingly, with pauses. "'He's ruined, unless he can get a million, to pay off his debts. He's dreadfully in love with the princess, and he can't marry her because of this. Her parents wouldn't allow it. He must have got it from Samson Levi, but he arrived too late, owing to Jules.' "'I know all about that, perhaps more than you do.' but I don't see how it affects you or me. "'The point is this, Dad,' Nella continued, "'he's tried to commit suicide. He's so hipped. Yes, real suicide. He took laudanum last night. It didn't kill him straight off. He's got over the first shock, but he's in a very weak state, and he means to die. And I truly believe he will die. Now, if you could let him have that million, Dad, you would save his life.' Nella's item of news was a considerable and disconcerting surprise to Rexall, but he hid his feelings fairly well. "'I haven't the least desire to save his life, Nell. I don't overmuch respect your Prince Eugen. I've done what I could for him, but only for the sake of seeing fair play, and because I object to conspiracies and secret murders. It's a different thing if he wants to kill himself. What I say is, let him. Who is responsible for his being in debt to the tune of a million pounds?' He's only got himself and his bad habits to thank for that. I suppose if he does happen to peg out, the throne of Posen will go to Prince Erebert. And a good thing, too. Aribert is worth twenty of his nephew.' "'That's just it, Dad,' she said, eagerly following up her chance. "'I want you to save Prince Eugen, just because Erebert, Prince Aribert doesn't wish to occupy the throne. He'd much prefer not to have it.' "'Much prefer not to have it? Don't talk nonsense.' If he's honest with himself, he'll admit that he'll be jolly glad to have it. Thrones are in his blood, so to speak. You are wrong, father, and the reason is this. If Prince Aribert ascended the throne of Posen, he would be compelled to marry a princess. Well, a prince ought to marry a princess. But he doesn't want to. He wants to give up all his royal rights and live as a subject. He wants to marry a woman who isn't a princess. Is she rich?' "'Her father is,' said the girl. "'Oh, Dad, can't you guess? He... he loves me.' Her head fell on Theodore's shoulder, and she began to cry. The millionaire whistled a very high note. "'Nell,' he said at length. "'And you? Do you sort of cling to him?' "'Dad,' she answered. "'You are stupid. Do you imagine I should worry myself like this if I didn't?' She smiled through her tears, she knew from her father's tone that she had accomplished a victory. It's a mighty queer arrangement," Theodore remarked. "But of course, if you think it'll be of any use, you'd better go down and tell your Prince Eugen that that million can be fixed up if he really needs it. I expect there'll be decent security, or Sampson Levi wouldn't have mixed himself up in it. Thanks, Dad. Don't come with me. I may manage better alone. She gave a formal little curtsey and disappeared. Raxel, who had the talent, so necessary to millionaires, of attending to several matters at once, the large with the small, went off to give orders about the breakfast and the remuneration of his assistant of the evening before, Mr. George Hazel. He then sent an invitation to Mr. Felix Babylon's room, asking that gentleman to take breakfast with him. After he had related to Babylon the history of Jules' capture, and had a long discussion with him upon several points of hotel management, and especially as to the guarding of wine cellars. Raxel put on his hat, sallied forth into the Strand, hailed a hansom, and was driven to the city. The order and nature of his operations there were too complex and technical to be described here. When Nella returned to the state bedroom, both the doctor and the great specialist were again in attendance. The two physicians moved away from the bedside as she entered and began to talk quietly together in the embrasure of the window. A curious case, said the specialist. Yes. Of course, as you say, it's a neurotic temperament that's at the bottom of the trouble. When you've got that and a vigorous constitution working one against the other, the results are apt to be distinctly curious. Do you consider there is any hope, Sir Charles? If I had seen him when he recovered consciousness, I should have said there was hope. Frankly, when I left last night, or rather this morning, I didn't expect to see the prince alive again, let alone conscious and able to talk. According to all the rules of the game, He ought to get over the shock to the system with perfect ease and certainty. But I don't think he will. I don't think he wants to. And moreover, I think he is still under the influence of suicidal mania. If he had a razor, he would cut his throat. You must keep his strength up. Inject, if necessary. I will come in this afternoon. I am due now at St. James's Palace. And the specialist hurried away, with an elaborate bow and a few hasty words of polite reassurances to Prince Erebert. When he had gone, Prince Eribert took the other doctor aside. "'Forget everything, doctor,' he said, "'except that I am one man and you are another, "'and tell me the truth. "'Shall you be able to save his highness? "'Tell me the truth.' "'There is no truth,' was the doctor's reply. "'The future is not in our hands, prince.' "'But you are hopeful, yes or no?' The doctor looked at Prince Eribert. "'No,' he said shortly. "'I am not. I am never hopeful when the patient is not on my side. "'You mean—' "'I mean that His Royal Highness has no desire to live. You must have observed that.' "'Only too well,' said Aribert, "'And you are aware of the cause?' Aribert nodded an affirmative. "'But cannot remove it?' "'No,' said Aribert. He felt a touch on his sleeve. It was Nella's finger.' With a gesture, she beckoned him towards the ante-room. "'If you choose,' she said, when they were alone, "'Prince Eugen can be saved. I have arranged it.' "'You have arranged it?' he bent over her, almost with an air of alarm. "'Go and tell him that the million pounds which is so necessary to his happiness will be forthcoming. Tell him that it will be forthcoming to-day, if that will be any satisfaction to him.' "'But what do you mean by this, Nella?' "'I mean what I say, Herbert. And she sought his hand and took it in hers. "'Just what I say. If a million pounds will save Prince Eugen's life, it is at his disposal.' "'But how—how how have you managed it? By what miracle?' "'My father,' she replied softly, "'will do anything that I ask him. Do not let us waste time. Go and tell Eugen it is arranged, that all will be well.' Go. but we cannot accept this this enormous this incredible favour it is impossible aribert she said quickly remember you are not in posen holding a court reception you are in england and you are talking to an american girl who has always been in the habit of having her own way the prince threw up his hands and went back into the bedroom the doctor was at a table writing out a prescription Aribert approached the bedside, his heart beating furiously. Eugen greeted him with a faint, fatigued smile. Eugen, he whispered, listen carefully to me. I have news. With the assistance of friends, I have arranged to borrow that million for you. It is quite settled, and you may rely on it. But you must get better. Do you hear me? Eugen almost sat up in bed. Tell me I'm not delirious, he exclaimed of course you aren't aribert replied but you mustn't sit up you must take care of yourself who will lend the money eugen asked in a feeble happy whisper never mind you shall hear later devote yourself now to getting better the change in the patient's face was extraordinary his mind seemed to have put on an entirely different aspect the doctor was startled to hear him murmur a request for food as for aribert he sat down overcome by the turmoil of his own thoughts. Till that moment he felt that he had never appreciated the value and the marvellous power of mere money, of the lucre which philosophers pretend to despise and men sell their souls for. His heart almost burst in its admiration for that extraordinary Nella, who by mere personal force had raised two men out of the deepest slough of despair to the blissful heights of hope and happiness. "'These Anglo-Saxons,' he said to himself, what a race! By the afternoon Eugen was noticeably and distinctly better. The physicians, puzzled for the third time by the progress of the case, announced now that all danger was past. The tone of the announcement seemed to Aribert to imply that the fortunate issue was due wholly to unrivaled medical skill, but perhaps Aribert was mistaken. Anyhow, he was in a most charitable mood and prepared to forgive anything. Nella, he said a little later, when they were by themselves again in the antechamber. "'What am I to say to you? How can I thank you? How can I thank your father?' "'You'd better not thank my father,' she said. "'That will affect to regard the thing as a purely business transaction, as of course it is. As for me, you can... you can... well?' "'Kiss me,' she said. "'There! Are you sure you've formally proposed to me, mon prince?' "'Ah, Nell!' he exclaimed, putting his arms round her again. "'Be mine. That is all I want.' "'You'll find,' she said, "'that you'll want Dad's consent, too.' "'Will he make difficulties?' "'He could not, Nell. Not with you.' "'Better ask him,' she said sweetly. A moment later, Rexall himself entered the room. "'Going on, all right?' he inquired, pointing to the bedroom." "'Excellently,' the lovers answered together, and they both blushed. "'Ah,' said Racksole. "'then, if that's so, and you can spare a minute, I've something to show you, Prince.'" CHAPTER Thirty. CONCLUSION "'I've a great deal to tell you, Prince,' Racksole began, as soon as they were out of the room, "'and also, as I said, something to show you. Will you come to my room? We will talk there first. The whole hotel is humming with excitement.' "'With pleasure,' said Aribert, "'Glad His Highness Prince Eugen is recovering,' Raxel said, urged by considerations of politeness. "'Ah! As to that,' Aribert began. "'If you don't mind, we'll discuss that later, Prince,' Raxel interrupted him. They were in the proprietor's private room. "'I want to tell you all about last night,' Raxel resumed. "'About my capture of Jules and my examination of him this morning.' And he launched into a full account of the whole thing down to the least details. You see, he concluded, that our suspicions as to Bosnia were tolerably correct, but as regards Bosnia, the more I think about it, the surer I feel that nothing can be done to bring their criminal politicians to justice. And as to Jules, what do you propose to do? Come this way, said Raxel, and led Herbert to another room. A sofa in this room was covered with a linen cloth. Raxel lifted the cloth he could never deny himself a dramatic moment, and disclosed the body of a dead man. It was Jules, dead, but without a scratch or mark on him. "'I have sent for the police. Not a street constable, but an official from Scotland Yard,' said Rexel. "'How did this happen?' Herbert asked, amazed and startled. "'I understood you to say that he was safely immured in the bedroom.' "'So he was,' Raxel replied.' i went up there this afternoon chiefly to take him some food the commissionaire was on guard at the door he had heard no noise nothing unusual yet when i entered the room jules was gone he had by some means or other loosened his fastenings he had then managed to take the door off the wardrobe he had moved the bed in front of the window and by pushing the wardrobe door three parts out of the window and lodging the inside end of it under the rail at the head of the bed he had provided himself with a sort of insecure platform outside the window. All this he did without making the least sound. He must then have got through the window and stood on the little platform. With his fingers he would just be able to reach the outer edge of the wide cornice under the roof of the hotel. By main strength of arms he had swung himself onto this cornice, and so got on to the roof proper. He would then have the run of the whole roof. At the side of the building facing Salisbury Lane there is an iron fire-escape, which runs right down from the ridge of the roof into a little sunk yard, level with the cellars. Jules might have thought that his escape was accomplished, but it unfortunately happened that one rung in the iron escape-ladder had rusted rotten through being badly painted. It gave way, and Jules, not expecting anything of the kind, fell to the ground. That was the end of all his cleverness and ingenuity." As Raxall ceased speaking, he replaced the linen cloth with a gesture from which reverence was not wholly absent. When the grave had closed over the dark and tempestuous career of Tom Jackson, once the pride of the Grand Babylon, there was little trouble for the people whose adventures we have described. Miss Spencer, that yellow-haired faithful slave and attendant of a brilliant scoundrel, was never heard of again. Possibly to this day she survives, a mystery to her fellow-creatures, in the pension of some cheap foreign boarding-house. As for Rocco, he certainly was heard of again. Several years after the events set down, it came to the knowledge of Felix Babylon that the unrivalled Rocco had reached Buenos Aires, and by his culinary skill was there making the fortune of a new and splendid hotel. Babylon transmitted the information to Theodore Rexel, and Rexel might had he chosen, have put the forces of the law in motion against him. But Raxel, seeing that everything pointed to the fact that Rocco was now pursuing his vocation honestly, decided to leave him alone. The one difficulty which Raxel experienced after the demise of Jules, and it was a difficulty which he had, of course, anticipated, was connected with the police. The police, very properly, wanted to know things. They desired to be informed what Raxel had been doing in the Dimmock affair between his first visit to Ostend and his sending for them to take charge of Jules's dead body. And Raxel was by no means inclined to tell them everything. Beyond question he had transgressed the laws of England, and possibly also the laws of Belgium, and the moral excellence of his motives in doing so was, of course, in the eyes of legal justice, no excuse for such conduct. The inquest upon Jules aroused some bother, and about ninety and nine separate and distinct rumors in the end however a compromise was arrived at Rexall's first aim was to pacify the inspector whose clue which by the way was a false one he had so curtly declined to follow up that done the rest needed only tact and patience he proved to the satisfaction of the authorities that he had acted in a perfectly honest spirit though with a high hand and that substantial justice had been done also, he subtly indicated that, if it came to the point, he should defy them to do their worst. Lastly, he was able, through the medium of the United States ambassador, to bring certain soothing influences to bear upon the situation. One afternoon, a fortnight after the recovery of the hereditary Prince of Posen, Eribert, who was still staying at the Grand Babylon, expressed a wish to hold converse with a millionaire. Prince Eugen, accompanied by Hans and some court officials whom he had sent for, had departed with immense eclat, armed with a comfortable million, to arrange formally for his betrothal. Touching the million, Eugen had given satisfactory personal security, and the money was to be paid off in fifteen years. You wish to talk to me, Prince, said Raxel to Aribert, when they were seated together in the former's room. I wish to tell you, replied Aribert, that it is my intention to renounce all my rights and titles as a royal prince of Posen, and to be known in future as Count Hartz, a rank to which I am entitled through my mother. Also that I have a private income of ten thousand pounds a year, and a chateau and a townhouse in Posen. I tell you this because I am here to ask the hand of your daughter in marriage. I love her, and I am vain enough to believe that she loves me. I have already asked her to be my wife, and she has consented. We await your approval. You honor us, prince, said Rexel with a slight smile, and in more ways than one. May I ask your reason for renouncing your princely titles? Simply because the idea of a morganatic marriage would be as repugnant to me as it would be to yourself and to Nella. That is good, the prince laughed. I suppose it has occurred to you that ten thousand pounds per annum for a man in your position is a somewhat small income. Nella is frightfully extravagant. I have known her to spend $60,000 in a single year, and have nothing to show for it at the end. Why, she would ruin you in twelve months! Nella must reform her ways,' Erebrot said. "'If she is content to do so,' Raxall went on, "'well and good. I consent.' "'In her name and my own, I thank you,' said Erebrot gravely and the millionaire continued so that she may not have to reform too fiercely i shall settle on her absolutely with reversion to your children if you have any a lump sum of fifty million dollars that is to say ten million pounds in sound selected railway stock i reckon that is about half my fortune nell and i have always shared equally aribert made no reply the two men shook hands in silence and then it happened that Nella entered the room. That night, after dinner, Rexel and his friend Felix Babylon were walking together on the terrace of the Grand Babylon Hotel. Felix had begun the conversation. I suppose, Rexel, he had said, you aren't getting tired of the Grand Babylon. Why do you ask? Because I am getting tired of doing without it. A thousand times since I sold it to you, I have wished I could undo the bargain. I can't bear idleness. Will you sell? I might,' said Raxel. I might be induced to sell. What will you take, my friend? asked Felix. What I gave, was the quick answer. Ah! Felix exclaimed. I sell you my hotel with Jules, with Rocco, with Miss Spencer you go and lose all those three inestimable servants and then offer me the hotel without them at the same price it is monstrous the little man laughed heartily at his own wit nevertheless he added we will not quarrel about the price i accept your terms and so was brought to a close the complex chain of events which had begun when theodore Raxel ordered a steak and a bottle of bars at the table of the grand babylon hotel end of chapter twenty nine and thirty end of the grand babylon hotel by arnold bennett recorded by anno simon august two thousand and eight